Wow, yeah. Thanks for that introduction, Dan. Uh, he's making me all emotional. I was going to not get into all of that, but uh, yeah, it um, really is. It's just it's wonderful to be here. It really is. Um, who knows what Mark is saying down in Basingstoke today? I dread to think, but probably some reference to wife swapping and all sorts. I don't know. But um, and what's he doing to our house as well? But uh, we're, we've got his house, so uh, I'm sure we'll return the favour. Um, but it's, it's just this morning, it was so, it's wonderful to be here. I just feel like uh, it's a feast, really, of worship, a wonderful time of worship and such a warm, uh, wonderful atmosphere and family here. And so I feel a real privilege to be with you and to be sharing God's word with you. So um, if you'd like to open up to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And I'm uh, going to read verse 26, starting in Genesis 1:26. And so it says there, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God Created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for foods. And it was so. And God said that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And just over in chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So today I'm talking about the subject of work. And uh, in fact, if um, or maybe as Bruce, Bruce Forsythe would say, uh, twerking. Have you heard of twerking? Um, it's, it's not a type of texting. It's what you guys say up here in Yorkshire, isn't it, when you're working? You're, you're going twerk. Uh, that's, uh, that was, if you're a strict, who's a Strictly fan? That was a joke last night. Bruce Forsythe delivered it much better than I just did, um, which is saying something. But um, okay, so we're... T- we're talking about work today. Now, at this point, some of you are dying a death in your seat. You're thinking, oh no, I'm having a day off today. Now you're reminding me of my job. You're reminding me of school. You're reminding me of homework. Kids, oh no, give me a break. I'm trying to have a break from work. The reality is that actually we spend 60% of our youthful waking hours at work. And yet, at church, we often spend our time praying for missionaries or for what we do in our leisure time. 
But actually God and the Bible is not just interested in our mere leisure time Christianity, but in whole life Christianity. Jesus didn't just come to redeem our leisure time, but all of our time, every nanosecond of our day. If we're not careful, though, we can end up with this kind of holiness hierarchy. So at the top of the hierarchy, number one, we have really holy people. And they become missionaries. And then secondly, down the ladder, we have moderately holy people. And they become, say, pastors. Somehow Dan and I slipped through the net there, but that's what they become. And then thirdly, there are people who are not much used to God, and they go and get a job. We can kind of have that attitude. There's two problems with that. One is, we're writing off 98% of the church... And secondly, it is decisively not God's view. But there is an illness in the church that can come in if we're not careful, and it's called SSD. And it's a really serious illness. It can infect the church. It can be terminal unless we do radical surgery. I'm sure Nick over here knows all about SSD, a very serious illness. In fact, it can paralyze 98% of the body if you're not careful. But SSD stands for the sacred-secular divide. And we have this idea that somehow, yeah, God is interested in our spiritual, our sacred lives, if you like, prayer, Bible study, church going, but he's not interested in the rest of our lives. That's secular work, not really interested in that. But no, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, he is interested in all of your life. God's interested in your life when you're in the classroom, kids, when you're in the staff room, teachers, when you're in the office, when you're in the kitchen, the factory, the hospital wards, the lab, I don't know, the football pitch, the space rocket, wherever it is that you have your work, he's interested in that. I mean, just think about the Old Testament. Think about the people, the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament. And they had ordinary jobs. I mean, Abraham was a traveling farmer and a businessman. Moses, kind of an academic, I suppose, and a nomadic farmer. Joseph, well, he had a number of career changes. Animal husbandry, service in a military household, prison management, prime minister, David and, um, or Daniel rather, and Nehemiah, civil servants. Esther. Esther changed the course of world history by auditioning as a beauty queen. In case you think that's sexist, what about Deborah? Judge. Army major general. And the most important job of all, Ruth. Housewife and mother. Creating a home in which children were raised and then out of that great, 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 great grandchild, we have Jesus. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, the carpenter. And his parables are peppered with stories of sowers and vineyard workers and harvesters and fishermen, house builders, house sweepers, bankers, soldiers. Not many parables about full-time workers. Maybe the Good Samaritan or something. But you get the picture. God is interested in our work. Let me just def- define quickly. What do I mean by work? 
And ordinarily, for most of us, of course, that would be paid employment. But it's wider than that. It's not necessarily paid employment. Some of us are in the happy position where perhaps we don't need uh, the money, but actually we can be involved in work in a voluntary way, uh, or indeed we can be retired, but God's still got things for us to do. Maybe not at the same pace as we used to be, but we still are not redundant in God's eyes. Being a mum, of course, huge, full-time work job. Uh, being a child and working at school. So what does God have to say then about work? And what does Genesis say, the passages that we've read today? First of all, I want to say this, that work is a gift from God. It is what you might call a creation ordinance. Okay. In other words, it didn't come in with the Ten Commandments. It didn't come in later as a curse. It came in right at the beginning of creation. It's part of the very fabric of who we are, that we're designed to work, and it was a gift from God. I mean, Mark Twain has said, hasn't he, you know, work is a necessary evil to be avoided if at all possible. Perhaps you kind of agree with that one, or, you know, maybe a little work never harmed anyone, but I'm not taking any chances. But actually, God's perspective is that it was a gift from him as a student as well. It's God's gift that we can study. Chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3 tells us that God worked. Three times in those two verses there, in verses 2 and 3, it tells us that God worked. By the way, notice also that it says he rested. Yeah, if I was here another day, I might preach about rest because there are boundaries. And some of us can make work into an, uh, into an idol and we can be workaholics and our bosses can dump stuff on us. And some of us need to know when to walk away, that there is life outside of work as well and we also need to rest. But that's not what I'm speaking about today. We see here that God worked. And then God created us in his image. Chapter 1, verse 27, we're made as his image bearers, his vice regents, his reps, his mirrors here on earth. And therefore, we're wired to do what God did. And so in doing so, to reflect him, we're wired to work. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 15, God commissions Adam and Eve, and he says that he's calling them to work in the garden and to take care of it. They are, he is God's park keeper. Not Percy, by the way, the park keeper, but he's God's park keeper and he's given that job. Therefore, work is not a curse. It's not a necessary evil. It's not like, well, I'd rather not work, but I need the money, so I'll just have to put up with it. It's not, well, I really want to be full time, but do some proper work for God. But until then, I'll just have to put up with this job. No, Work is a blessing from God for his glory and his good. Now, some of you at this point are saying, but hang on a minute. What about the fall? What about the fact that Adam and Eve sinned and then didn't it all go wrong and didn't work become a curse? So what some of us wake up in the morning, instead of saying, good morning, Lord, we say, good Lord, it's morning and we don't want to go to work. Yeah, because actually, of course, because of man's sin, Work did become a lot harder. And so we read in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your foods until you return to the ground. 
So yes, after sin, the curse came in and notice those words, cursed, painful, toil, thorns, the sweat of your brow. So now, from now on, the day at the office can be marked by things going wrong. Yeah, making you want a curse or painful performance management meetings, thorny issues, and just plain sweat and hard graft. Work feels like a mixed blessing, doesn't it? People let you down, your manager is inconsiderate, your colleagues are incompetent, your customers are impatient. Too little time to meet too many targets, too many projects with too few resources, too many glitches in the IT system, too many dirty nappies, a husband who gets in late home from work, kids screaming, can't keep up with the school letters and homework, houses a tip, ah! Do you ever feel like that, some of you, with work? So you could say, well, you know what, I think I might as well just give up. Okay, work was originally a blessing, but not anymore. So me, like Deborah Meaden, I'm out. You might say, you know me, I'm hoping to win the lottery and never work again. Or I just go on benefits. The writer to the Ecclesiastes expresses the frustration well. Um, as a family, we've been recently reading through Ecclesiastes at breakfast. The kids voted for it and then regretted it because it was a very depressing way to start the school day. You know, every time it's like everything is meaningless. <laughs> right, mum, so we're going to work and it's all meaningless today at school. So let's read a couple of verses in chapter 2, verse 22. It says, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun. All, they, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So yeah, does that express it sometimes? Anxiety, to toil, grief, pain, even sleepless nights, just being anxious can feel meaningless. But what does he say? He doesn't say, therefore, let's give up. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So he says, yeah, it is tough, but it is worthwhile. It's a gift from God. And if you do it with God, he can redeem your work and make it satisfying. As the writer says later in Ecclesiastes, I saw that there's nothing better for a person to enjoy their work. And later he says that God will give us joy as we toil all the days of the life that he's given us. Similar dynamic is expressed in another book in Jeremiah. Recently, I've just finished reading through Jeremiah. So it's been a very depressing place, our home recently. Ecclesiastes in the morning, me reading Jeremiah. You know, you remember Jeremiah the prophet? And, uh, I mean, he's, someone likened him recently to Vince Cable. Uh, Vince Cable is described as a Jeremiah because, you know, recently there were, everyone was saying the economy is picking up, things are going well now. And then there's Vince Cable saying, not necessarily, it's still going to be quite tough for a while before we get into, uh, into some more prosperity. Well, Jeremiah was a bit like that. The prophets were saying, we're not going to go into exile. Everything's going to be fine. And there's Jeremiah, prophet of doom, saying, it's going to be tough. 
We're going to go into exile. We're going to go into Babylon. The Babylonians are going to take us and destroy everything and take us into, into Babylon. And so that's what he does. He, he prophesies and he says, when you go into Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat the produce, marry, have sons and daughters, increase, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So, really surprising advice, isn't it? Jeremiah is saying, although this whole Babylonian thing is going to end in 70 years' time, you are here, you're going to be here, and while you're here, work, seek its prosperity, pray for Babylon, that it prospers, and you, and you get it stuck in there and invest your time into this thing. Really surprising advice. Because later in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 50, I mean, if you like dramatic war scenes in films, armies advancing, serried ranks of soldiers with weapons lined up, you know, like an extended Lord of the Rings movie or something. You know, one of those epic battles. Here in the end of Jeremiah, we have two lengthy chapters all about how one day Babylon is going to be decimated, destroyed. It's awesomely terrifying stuff. It's all going to come to an end. But in the meantime, get stuck in and work where you are. See, Babylon is a picture in the Bible of this world system in which we live. And God says, One day, all of this is going to be changed. But in the meantime, I'm calling you to get stuck in where you are. Christians, get stuck in. Pray for your company. Maximize the profits. Hit the targets. Embrace the vision. Work hard. Be a good team member. Be a good employee. You could say, yeah, but it's all going to be destroyed, isn't it? Because we were singing earlier, empire's full. It's all coming to an end. Well, actually, it's all going to be made new. But in the meantime, we're here to demonstrate the kingdom of God in this world. We're tomorrow's people, and we're here to reveal what tomorrow will look like today to the people around us. And so we therefore need to prophetically demonstrate by the way that we go about our work that there is a God in heaven, and and there is a different way of doing things. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that there are some Christians who weren't really very keen on the whole idea of work. You know the kind of Christian we read about in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians? These people were so taken up with the idea that Jesus was going to come back anytime soon. And therefore, because he was about to return, there's no point in working. We're just going to spend our time in prayer and preparation for the end of the world. They were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. And Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. He says to them, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anyone. It's interesting, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he says there in verse 14, Warn the idle, 
help the weak. It's interesting, isn't it? So there are different types of people. And I suspect right here, right now, there are different people in different categories. There are those. I'm sure there's no one here in this category, actually. I better be careful. But there might be someone. Some of us could be prone to being lazy, all right, and being idle. And we need encouragement to get out there and to work. But there are other people who are weak, who are struggling for whatever reason. Real, genuine reasons. You're depressed. The thought of even trying to face anyone out there or the pressures of doing something out there, it's just impossible to even consider it. Or physically, you're just unable to, to work. There might be just reasons you just can't get a job. And it says here that we're to show compassion, we're to support, we're to help, we're to provide for those in need. There is a place, rightly, for benefits, for supporting people. And as a church, I believe that God is calling you to be there for people who are struggling, to support people, to show compassion and care for those in need. And I believe that God is going to open up for you more and more a ministry to people, helping them to get back on their feet helping them to find confidence and courage again and ultimately dignity again in work. But God is calling you to be people who show his compassion to those in need. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, you know, even when I was with you, I gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle, disruptive. You're not busy, you're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge In the Lord Jesus, settle down and eat the food that you eat. You could say, you could put a spiritual gloss on life. You know, there's much more important things than work. I'm doing kingdom stuff. Hello? Work is kingdom stuff. And God is giving you as a church here. I believe there are some of you struggling with jobs and God wants to help you in your work. There are some here who are just out of work and actually need God's encouragement and love and compassion and care. And as a church, God is calling you to work. I see collaborations. I see partnerships for you as a church. I see resources opening up and a door opening for you to get more and more involved in this area. But let me just be practical for a little while. How do we work What does Genesis say and what does the Bible say about the way we go about our work? Let's go back to the original Dob description. I've got a few points to make. The first thing is this, that the way that we work is this, to rule, to steward. That's what God told Adam and Eve. He wanted them to steward, to be creative, to take chaos and turn it into something meaningful. Just like God took the emptiness, the chaos, the raw material of this universe that he had created and fashioned it into something ordered, meaningful, useful, productive. God did that and he wants us to do that. Like taking a good idea and a bank loan, turning it into a successful SME that employs people and makes a difference in the world. Like taking a bunch of reception children and getting any of them who are still in nappies out of nappies and into listening and learning. Like taking a chaotic house and turning it into a secure home. Like 
taking a blank canvas and some paint and turning it into a masterpiece. Like, like Indian Tatar Motors taking Jaguar, a failing British car company, by the scruff of the neck and transforming it into a booming brand which is about to invest another 1.5 billion in the UK and create another 1,700 jobs in Solihull. God calls us to be those who are stewards and who take and make something purposeful out of chaos. The second thing about work we can see is that work is a way in which we we experience God's provision in our lives and also for others. When we work, of course, we're providing for ourselves, providing for our families. We're hopefully providing for the church as we give and as we uh, give generously into the church uh, life, but also reaching out to the needy. As Ephesians 4 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather labor with honest work so that he has something to share with others who are in need. It's a picture of a guy, you probably wouldn't recognize him, but this guy is called Andrew Webber. Andrew Webber runs a small business called the London Fan Company. The London Fan Company, surprise, surprise, makes fans. That's it, you got it. And uh, rather good industrial fans as it happens. Huge ones, ones that go inside Lakeside Lakeside and Harlequin's shopping centre. Fans that power the joint service hovercraft that went up the Amazon. Anyone into Batman? The latest Batmobile, the fan on that, was designed and based on one of his designs. As you can expect, he makes a reasonable profit in his company. And a reasonable amount of that profit goes to charity. If you can imagine a fan being made on a factory floor... As you can imagine, there's a certain amount of metal involved in making an industrial fan. And as the machine tools carve their precise paths around the metal parts, there are slivers and curls and twirls of aluminium that fall like catkins to the factory floor. And the slivers are valuable. They can be swept up, loaded up, taken off to a scrap merchant and sold to make some money. Saving waste. Great idea. Take the cash. No. Do you know what he does? Gives that money to need, to charity. Gives it away. It's a wonderful example of living out what it says in, in Leviticus. Do you remember that passage about the gleanings? Remember about the harvest? And don't reap to the very edges of the field. Leave some gleanings for the, for the workers, for poor people, so they can pick up the spare stuff that's fallen to the side and live off of that. He says, I am the Lord your God. Remember the poor and the alien. And here he is. He's, it's the principle of the gleanings. And wonderful outworking of the principle of compassion. God providing and us providing for people through our work. So that's the second thing about working. It is a way in which we experience and express provision. Another thing about work. Work is being creative. How did God work? Wonderfully creatively, didn't he? With an eye for beauty. I love the verse in Genesis 2.9. It says this. God made the trees that were good for food and pleasing to the eye. 
pleasing to the sight. These trees were functional, but they also looked good. They were beautiful. They were pleasing to the eye. I don't know about you. I love trees. And God didn't just make fruit factories. He made beautiful trees that were functional, but also beautiful. And he wants us to be the same. When we work, let's have an eye to doing it beautifully, brilliantly, excellently, expressing his excellence and his, his eye for beauty. Now, the answer to any inner city deprivation is not just providing you know, high-rise flats that are dry and warm, but actually that are also beautiful and life-enhancing. I know I sound a bit like Prince Charles, but, you know, homemakers, designers, planners, we've got a God-given calling to create fantastic environments that bring the best out of people. I'm a governor at a junior school, and uh, we recruited a new head teacher recently. And one of the very first things she did when she came in to our school was she looked around at our school and she said, this is so tatty. Just carpets and the lighting and the walls and the displays. It was all kind of pretty tatty. And she said, what kind of message are you giving to the children and the staff at this school when you have sort of a mess all around? What are we saying to them? And so that's one of the first things she did. It looks fantastic now. And it's a much better environment. It says something to people. We want the best. And we want to give you the best that we can. Anyone recognize this? Anyone? Park Hill, that's it. Park Hill. All right, now some of you might love it or hate it. I don't know. It's been redesigned, hasn't it? It was recently up for a sterling prize for architecture. But actually, there's loads more light. There's loads more space. It's been created differently now. And maybe that's, you know, the kind of thing. Uh, that we're, we're, we're thinking about. But work also is a place where we can witness, isn't it? Where we can be a witness. I came across a, a, a story of a lady called Anita. And she became a teacher at a new school. And when she arrived at the school, she discovered that the deputy head had just become a Christian. But the head was an atheist. And she also discovered, the thirdly, that the Christians there had, were talking about starting a prayer group in their school for years, but they'd never got round to it. So when Anita arrived, number three changed almost instantly. Similarly, when the headmaster's brother had an operation and needed 26, had, had suffered 26 different injuries in a car crash, Anita asked the deputy head, could you please tell the head that I'm praying for him? And so the head said to the deputy when he told her, told him, he said, does it need to know that I'm an atheist? To which the deputy said, does it matter if she does know? Doesn't it make you feel nice that someone's praying for you? The head beamed like Billy Bunter with a tuck, tuck box full of chocolate. We're there to witness in our workplace, to be sensitive, of course, to let our, our actions speak before our words and uh, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. As another aspect of work, which is, of course, as I've expressed it already, do it excellently. Do it to the best of your ability. 
build your skill set and strive for excellence. Whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Wherever you are, be all there. Say no to complacency, mediocrity. Reject the idea that okay is okay. Don't clock watch. Do the bare minimum to stay off the boss's radar. Just be behind the curve. Do the least you can get away with to keep your boss off your back. No, dare I say, bring faith, bring energy. Dare I say, bring enthusiasm into your home, your work, even the mundane things that you do. Be awake, be alive, be alert, be on the ball, be on top, be on the money, go the extra mile, shine like stars, take initiative, be the best that you can. You might say, well, hang on a minute. No one appreciates me at work. In fact, I haven't had a pay rise for years. You should see my job. Demoralized, dead-end, depressing dump that it is, you might think. Let me ask you a question humbly as I come to a close. Ultimately, who are we working for? The Bible tells us, doesn't it? Ephesians 6 says, Obey your masters, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but do it from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do. We're doing God's watching. In the end, it's him that you're living to please. Tells us in Colossians as well. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is Christ Jesus that you are serving. And 1 Peter 2 just says, you know, be subject to your masters, not only for their, when they're good and gentle, but even when they're harsh and unjust. You see, what makes your work holy is the fact that you're doing it with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I want to encourage you today to bring fresh faith into the whole of your life. I think God wants to encourage you. Some of you guys struggling, some of you just feeling demoralized, depressed, and God wants to help you and encourage you. Work becomes worship when you dedicate it to God and do it with an awareness of his presence. But I don't want to finish there. I just want to draw our attention, of course, to one massive thing. And that's God's great work. Rather than thinking about what we can do, let's just finish by thinking about what he has done. Surely, the greatest piece of work that has ever been done by a man in human history is the work that Jesus did on the cross. Remember we talked about cursing and pain and thorns and sweat. Well, what about Jesus? I mean, talk about painful toil 
excruciating pain. Thorns, sweat like drops of blood, cursed on a tree for us, for our sins. Here's the amazing thing. He worked on the cross and we get the benefits of forgiveness completely free. We don't have to lift a finger. We just receive by faith his work on the cross. When it comes to salvation, we cannot work to gain acceptance by God. He has worked so that we can be loved for eternity. Jesus did the work and finished it on the cross. And then on the third day, the Father kicked in with his great work, which he worked in Christ in raising him from the dead. And so when you go to work, you don't need to strive. It's not that you're working to impress You don't have to be driven. We can be secure knowing that we're accepted by God. We're loved by him. He is in control. And we're his workmanship. In the end, if he's our boss, we do it to the best of our ability. But we also remember that he is a compassionate boss. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He calls us to come away and rest with him, to be refreshed in him. Dan referred just at the beginning today to uh, how I started out. Actually, my first ever preach ever was at Walkley Baptist Church in 1990. And uh, when I suddenly remember that in the worship, I really just came over quite emotional. We're singing about God is in control. And I would never have known what God was going to do with my life. And yet I can say this over all the years as we've been singing, he is in control and he is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is at work in your life. Do you believe that? Do you know that? God is with you. And through Christ, you are accepted in him. And then he is with you when you go out there into the world as his witness, as his image bearer. He's with you and he's working all things for good. So can we pray together?